Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Taishar Manethrin, a Wheel of Time podcast. I am Will. I'm Sam. And we're on the fourth and final portion of our walk through the Dragon Reborn. So we're excited to get to a very exciting conclusion. This is really a lot happens in the last quarter of this book. So we're going to dive right in. Sam, why don't you get us started? Yeah, chapter 45. Matt and Tom get to Camelin at last. Uh, Matt is trying to deliver Elaine's letter and almost gets himself arrested. Didn't get the memo that there was a new new head honcho in Camelin, Lord Gabriel is running the show. Gate officer accuses him of being a dark friend. He gets away. Then he goes and meets up with Basil Gill and Basil Gill and Tom, uh, who are playing stones. And yes. Basil says that uh, Lord Gabriel has replaced the guards in Camelin, um, and Gareth Brynn has been forced out. Matt rolls the dice and gets, <laughs> gets the dark one's eyes, uh, five single pips. And I think Tom says something like, that could be the best or the worst hand, depending on what game yes. he's playing. <laughs> Thinks he's going to play a dangerous game. Right. So uh, Matt decides to break into the palace the same way that Rand did by scaling a wall. Like, seriously, why did they not do something about that after Rand pulled it? They, they do kind of hang a lampshade on it when <laughs> he, he says... Well, I climbed the the wall, and some somebody says, "Ah, oh, that flaming wall." Yeah, it's the right, same. Right, right. The same it should be built. And they're like, "Yes, why don't you go do that right now?" <laughs> right, right. He hears a man tell another to find and kill Elaine. Right, no big deal. Just right, yeah, just no, no big deal. Uh, but then when he goes to the throne room and hears Lord Gabriel, he realizes it's the same voice. <laughs> um, right. So he was all ready to tell. Queen Morgays that he'd heard this plot, um, but realizes he can't because this man who's now in charge and has the queen's ear is in the throne room, so he can't can't tell her. So he decides to play dumb. Cut plays like a country bumpkin, and yes. Lord Gabriel just eats it up, gives him the ten gold marks, and says, "Go see the world." Yes, and at this point, we are kind of given a picture that something is up more right. than just yeah, because Morgays is should be this kind of strong, powerful, independent woman, and she's kind of not being herself. Right. She's described as like making eyes at him and everything. All very different from the Morgays we met in Eye of the World and and the one that is being described any time that she's referred to as being went by by Tom or um, elsewise as as being her own person. And this is you do start to think, okay, there's something going on here. It's it's not clear what yet. Right. So uh, we get some a little mini scene here with Matt and Talonvor and essentially see that Talonvor is loyal to uh, Morgays, even when it seems like most of the court, most of the guards are you know, loyal to Gabriel, not really. But he doesn't tell Talonvor anything. He just decides to decides to go go back to Tom. I want to pause here for a second and just there is an interesting moment when Morgays reads the letter. Yeah. She says to Matt very specifically to go back and tell Elaine that she particularly enjoyed those times speaking to Shiriam in her study. And Talonvor asks, what does that mean later? And Matt's like, I don't know. And I have to say, it really does sound like some kind of a message. message. Um, But even as a person who's read through it now, not really I mean, sure what it means. <laughs> yeah. Or if she really was just saying, oh, I just really enjoyed hanging out with Shiriam in her study. <laughs> right. Because Morgays, of course, did also study in the in the White Tower, even though she's right. not force sensitive, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Matt goes back to the inn and says he's going to head for Tyr because he wants to stop Komar, the dark friend, from killing Elaine and uh, asks, you know, Starts asking Basil Gill about Gabriel a little bit. Finds out that the guy just kind of showed up during the winter, led the men supporting more gays during riots. It's like probably he started the riots. Seems like he was probably responsible yeah. for that. Yeah. And so there's not really a lot of information. We don't really know who he is. Matt kind of explains that Gabriel wants Elaine dead. And so they just realize they need to do something. Tom suggests one thing that's kind of interesting. Tom suggests that Basil spread rumors about Gabriel that will get back to more gays. So that she'll find out the truth. And then, you know, the idea being that she would kick him out if she knew the truth about him. 
mm-hmm. of course, we know that that won't work, but it's it's a good idea. <laughs> it's yeah. a good. Well, and a good I, start. I love the detail of how Basil says. Well, I've told a dream of mine before to so and so, and then I've heard it from so and so who swore they got it from three men who swore it happened to him, and all this, and how rumors tend to swell and grow and shift and everything. That's that's something that is a big part of the way that these books go, and and later. Still, you have this funny thing that happens when rumors are being described where the the narration will say, well, this happened. No, this happened. Well, no, right, this happened. Right. Everything. So it's just a, it's a fun little note of how, yes, indeed, rumors are, as Tom says, the voice of the people. But they're also heartily inaccurate quite often. Indeed. So with that plan in place, Tom and Matt set off for Tyr, and we leave our heroes to their to their work. And back to an Egwene dream montage that is once again full of spoilery imagery. Yes, so we have a white cloak putting Master Luhan in the middle of a huge tooth trap for bait. Perrin with a falcon on his shoulder, Perrin choosing between his axe and a hammer. Matt dicing with the dark one. Rand sneaking through the darkness toward Kalandor, followed by six men and five women, including a man with eyes of flame. Rand in a dry, dusty chamber with small creatures settling onto his skin. Rand confronting a horde of Shan Chan, and Rand confronting her as she has a Shan Chan woman with her. Lots of lots of imagery. So surprisingly, it seems like um, they get to tear first, except maybe Rand, who's sort of like, everyone seems to bump into him and be like, oh, that's not really him. <laughs> <laughs> but it, which I didn't, wouldn't have expected them to get there first. But we do get a little bit of a, a description of the Stone of Tear, which is interesting. It's this sort of just this mountainous structure that was built using the power, as opposed to being brick and mortar, just being built by hand. And it's, right. it's sort of ironic since the Tyrants' high lords do not take kindly to channeling. They don't want anyone involved with channeling remotely nearby, even though their fortress was built with the power. Well, and they, they even kind of point that out, that there's a lot of hypocrisy in Tyr. They also have like the largest col- collection of Angrial outside of the White Tower in the Stone of Tyr, objects of power. Right, which we do in later books. Some of those objects of power, such as a t- certain twisted doorway, become very important. Right, yes. And, you know, the Stone of Tear, the way it's described as, like, not having seams, kind of, that it's just like this one huge domed kind of thing. You know what I picture? Mm. Stone Mountain. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I like smaller than that, but basically yeah. the same thing. If you don't know, Stone Mountain is located outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and it is one of the largest, it may be the largest single granite deposit in the world or something like that. But it's just a portion of it is sticking up above the earth. Most of it is, is below. It's actually where the stone that built the Lincoln Memorial was taken out of, interestingly enough. But it's this huge rock and you see it for miles and it's just a big smooth rock sticking up over the yeah, horizon. the surrounding landscape is fairly flat too so that's that's kind of and tier is described as being flat and it's down there by the coast so that's kind of the way i picture it is as you write up on it that you can't help but see the the stone of tier from every direction that you approach tier on because it's just so big and the the whole it's this big stone looking building right so they decide you know they're of course they are there to hunt the black Aja specifically and so naive says well they probably shouldn't stay at an inn so that they don't trigger the black Aja, i suppose so she does kind of a creative thing she finds a house that has herbs out in the that, that has evidence of a local wise one a wisdom whatever you want to call it and so we meet mother gwenna who is mm-hmm. the local wisdom, whatever their name is of the, and so they kind of have a, a back and forth about wise one wisdom thing things and and what various herbs are used for uh, testing each other, and finally uh, naive convinces her to let them rent a room from her after kind of talking to her for a while, and then they they also say that they would like a a thief catcher to help them to help them find their dark friends that they're looking for. So Mother Gwena introduces our. Drop-in Curin replacement, Julin Sandar. Mm-hmm. Instead of Shinaran, we get ourselves a Tyrant. Right, yes. Very, very similar. And like I think we said earlier, it could very easily combine these two characters in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Either having 
you know, Huron follow them to Tyr or having him just show up in Tyr and either one or vice versa, just have Julian be the one somehow either way. Right. Um, and, and both of them are likable characters and, and, yeah. and have some distinctions, but obviously Huron being a sniffer is a pretty big thing in the previous right. book. That could be, and that could be a fact factor that if they chose him would affect other, you know, would could potentially right other scenes if, you know, since Julian obviously doesn't have that power. Uh, yeah. Maybe not. I mean, this could be glossed over, but that is a, that is a good point. So he does agree to help them look for the Black Aja and he's just going to ask around. I just picture him going to dive bars. I'm like, so looking for a lady with curly hair and uh, mold on her nose or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which does, we later see backfires because of course, once they hear that someone's looking for them, they're going to look for a guy looking for him. So we get ourselves a Teleron Riyadh sequence. Egwene um, mm-hmm. is sort of gaining her footing a little bit here. She's still a babe in the woods, but she understands a little bit about how the rules work and dreams herself in this stone of tear where she sees the Black Aja meeting in Teleron Riyadh and gets away luckily, but thinks, oh, they may have seen me. You know, I don't know. She has confirmation the Black Aja are in the stone of tear. So back to Matt and Tom, they get to tear. And immediately start looking for the girls. We get one detail here that Tom has a terrible cough. You know, they're kind of, the weather's terrible. Matt's like really intent on finding the girls or finding Komar. So he's like pushing them really hard. And Tom's, Tom's not feeling good. He's an, he's an older dude. He's, he's, he's pushing harder than he'd like to be. Matt, this is one of those things I was talking about. Matt sees a tall, tall man, but dismisses the idea that it could be Rand. Like it is though. Like, come on, man. Like he also passes a shop with herbs in the window. <laughs> right, right. Because, well, he was, his luck was actually presenting him with, hey, if you're trying to find the girls, here, here they, they are. are. Right, right. <laughs> but he didn't pay attention at that point. Hmm. Wasn't, uh, wasn't keyed into it. But he does find Komar, who's dicing with weighted dice. So Matt plays him and wins, even though Komar had the weighted dice. And they fight. Komar dies. Um, but before he dies, he admits he hasn't found the three women yet. But he is not the only one looking for them. So their search is not over, even though Komar is. Yes. Rest of the gang get to tier two. Um, we get ourselves Perrin's perspective. We get ourselves a little blacksmith montage after Perrin notices there's one just kind of next door to the end. So he's like, oh, okay, I'd like to go go get my blacksmith on a little bit. So Fayil follows him and gets to see him get all sweaty. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I could almost see this being played for humor where right, right. she's sitting there looking like, Ah. Biting your lip a little bit. Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and Perrin walks in. He's like, yeah, I'm an apprentice. And then by the end, the the blacksmith's like, no, you're not. Why did you even say that? And lets him keep his hammer. So, and and this starts the whole thing with the hammer. It's like the hammer or the axe. You know, he's like, especially in the next book, it's like, should I I have the hammer or should I have the axe? I guess the the idea being, should I really just want to be a blacksmith? I don't want to be a fighter. But the the imagery is muddled slightly when he uses the hammer like the axe. Right. (laughs) He's fighting with it. Like, well, I guess even if you choose the hammer, you're still going to be bashing heads in. (laughs) Well, there there is, in the last trilogy, there's this phrase he says, this is, I don't this doesn't spoil anything, I don't think, where he kind of explains the difference between the hammer and the axe. And that is, both can be used to destroy, but really only the hammer can be used to create. Oh, yeah. And so that's the that's good. The difference in his mind is that the axe is purely something that destroys versus a hammer can destroy, but it can also create. That's good. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd forgotten all about that. But that's, a, that's a very good point. So Moraine shows up once again and says, High Lord Salmon, who we heard mentioned before, is Bilal the Forsaken. So this is once again, I'm picturing like the most wanted poster from Harry Potter with like the, right. you know, <laughs> serious black space on it. You know, like, that's how she yeah. it. I, I just figure he's got one of those little gold necklaces that like middle school girls do with their <laughs> names on them that he just forgot to tuck into his shirt. She's like sitting there and going, hey, it's Bilal. And he's like, oh, dang. <laughs> right. He still has his name tag from the Dark Friend Social. Uh, yes, that's true. Hi, my name is Forsaken. <laughs> she seems to know a lot about his plan. <laughs> Again, like, I guess that's as plausible if she's got eyes and ears in, sure. in the stone. Uh, but Bilal wants to let Rand take Kalendor, So she's 
So he's, you know, sort of trying to draw him out and then he's going to take it from him. That's, that's his whole plan. He wants to, he knows only Rand can pull the sword from the stone. Uh, he's the chosen one, but he's going to take it once Rand pulls it. That's the plan. Uh, and Moraine's plan is to stop him with Balefire, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of her answer for everything lately. Yes. Lan remarks that there are Aiel in town. So he's seen them on the rooftops. Perrin mentions his interaction with Gaul and that the whole they're the Aiel are seeking he who comes with the dawn and that they'll they when they find him that the Aiel will leave the threefolds land. And Moraine's like, that's not in the prophecy of the dragons at all. <laughs> yeah. But there's much we don't know. That's true. The Aiel kind of are a reference in the prophecies of the dragon, they're just not called mm-hmm. the Aiel. Indeed they are. So she asks Loyal if he has any information about Bilal, and I can't remember who it was. Someone's like, why are you asking Loyal? And Moraine says, well, you know, yeah, the old gear are long-lived, and there's only been a few generations since the Age of Legends for them. They would have a, you know, they have a longer memory, and they generally take good notes. And Loyal doesn't have much information. He just says, Bilal turned to the shadow because he was envious of Luce Theron. And he was in, and this was an interesting, I thought this was an interesting detail. He was involved in the raising of the Hall of the Servants, before Luce Theron and the Hundred Companions sealed him with the Dark One. Mm-hmm. I, you know, can I just say, I think it would be cool if we got some mini flashbacks. Oh, to for sure. Some of the, and, and I know there are lengthy scenes set in the Age of Legends, particularly in the next book in Roydeon. But yeah. like these epic moments, Luce Theron and his Hundred Companions sealing the Dark One, or you know, I'm just thinking Lord of the Rings style. Oh, sure. You like yeah. just the, the Titanic battles. We just need some of that stuff. Yeah. Well, the people that were wondering if we were ever going to get Tom Marilyn cast announcements, some people were wondering aloud, kind of, is it possible that Tom would get cut? And kind of giving a reason for, you know, it, it, he doesn't exactly have a direct impact on the plot in a lot of ways. He's kind of more just there to add to things. And I disagreed with that because I was saying, well, there's more to a story than to further the plot. Tom doesn't like directly further the plot, but he is as much part of the setting as anything else. It's, he's important, both his role as a gleeman and what does that mean? And the way people react to him and the way that he puts on his gleeman show and everything. But also, I mean, cause that's rich. That's just rich imagery. And and it gives you an idea of the way the world is, but not just that also the fact that he can be really great for giving, exposition. Somebody commented, I think, when I said that, oh, yeah, because people love exposition dumps. I'm like, well, no, not like he's going to sit there and talk and the camera's going to stay on him. I'm picturing it like you're saying. Like these scenes, yeah. Right, yeah, like like the... The beginning of Lord of the Rings starts with a prologue that if you've never read the books, you would be shocked to find is not there at all. Much like these books, you have to kind of get bit by bit what happened along and along as different people kind of mention to you, oh, here's what happened and this is what what happened with Saruman and all this. Well, the same thing could be true. There, There could be flashbacks in this that give you a more rich idea of the history, particularly, for example, in the last book, when we meet Arter Hawkwing, that would have a lot more impact if we had more of a backstory on who Arter Hawkwing was. Yeah, um, definitely. I like that. Yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's a good, be a good way to go about it. And you know that scenes like that would be really expensive and epic and it's like, yeah, I know all that, but just do it, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do it anyway. It doesn't have to be too much, too many of them, but please, please do. We right. need some epic scenes in this. Definitely. Well, and that's that's what's funny about Lord of the Rings. That opening scene was not a part of the original script. It's something that they added kind of late in the process of producing the films that they realized, hey, people probably need this. Yeah, to, to understand what the heck, you know, frame it, so to speak. So it was, it was kind of a bit of an afterthought. And yet it's this huge, epic beginning that uh, helps, as you say. It the whole yeah. show. The old right, movie. right. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I would actually love it. I, I, again, like you say, it may be too expensive. I would love it if they even started with something like that. Yeah. And, and there, is the, there is the chance because the actual prologue is set in the Age of Legends at the end of the Age of Legends. Right. So you could easily just flesh that out just enough to show, I don't know, the Hundred Companions actually sealing the Dark One in his prison and the Dark One reaching out and tainting Sidene, have a little right. montage of... of 
the male Aes Sedai losing their minds, breaking the world. That is that I think is delivered just in exposition by Ishmael, right. perhaps in the prologue. Yeah. And you, yeah. there's no reason you couldn't just go ahead and um, just do that rather than having it be exposition. Right. Sort of. Exactly. The only other thing we have in this chapter is Fahil asks Perrin what, he, what he's going to do because Moraine said, just stay put. And so Perrin's response is, first I'm going to have something to eat. Then I'm going to think about a hammer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure she's like, okay, whatever. whatever. That sounds like, like a euphemism of some kind. <laughs> like, and, and I think, in, in fact, it does mention that he's also going to think about Fahil. <laughs> he is going to think about his hammer and his axe, but he's probably also going to think about Fahil. And whether or not I don't know. he actually I, I was thinking more, it's like, hey, I have to go uh, uh, visit the <laughs> men's room. I've got to... Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I gotta go think about a hammer if you know what I'm talking some, about. There hasn't been a lot of downtime. Maybe right, time you can get, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think we're up to chapter fifty-one here. Right. Yeah, fifty-one of uh, fifty-six. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So naive. Oh, once again, someone sees Rand out of the just kind of out of the corner of her eye, probably. And once again, she just kind of dismisses. Oh, I couldn't be Rand. Why would he be here? He's hundreds of miles from here. Why couldn't you guys have coordinated a little bit? You know, when you were going to get in right. the sound, like have a meetup spot. <laughs> and and yeah. there's even a crazy Tavirin moment that happens right after she sees him. This fisherman trips, drops a basket full of fish, and they all land in a circle sticking up in the mud. Why was that not a little more obvious to you that that was Rand's doing? Um, <laughs> but no, that was just really for us more more so than for Nynaeve, I would say. Nynaeve goes with Julin, who has who's under compulsion at this point by Landrin to make him betray our three heroes, so he leads Nynaeve into an ambush. Landrin cuts her off from the power, so Nynaeve punches her in the face, which is... <laughs> There you go. That's one of those things. Go, go Power Rangers. That We got to have that happen. <laughs> yes. Like, in Leandra is so shocked. She's like all smug, like, I've cut you off from the power. Like, well, I can still punch you in the face. I did watch the first two episodes of Power Rangers Ninja Steel uh, because I wanted to see Zoe Robbins in action. And it is... It is pretty much what I expected. It's, it's Power Rangers. There's a lot yes. of very obvious toys merchandising toys that they're and it's like I, I don't know i'm just a little surprised that their their various accoutrements are just look like toys anyway yes. the acting is what you'd expect yes <laughs> all that is an aside leandrin reveals kind of her master plan to use or i guess it's really Bilal's master plan to use the three of them as bait to get to rand and then after he, they've John Rand in. They're going to turn them to the shadow with a circle of merge all. So real pleasant conversation all around. Sure, right. <laughs> so anyway, then we get back to Matt and Tom, and we see why Tom has been coughing up a storm for the past few days or chapters. It's so Matt has a reason to go visit a wise woman. Of course he does, and of course that's how we find out what happens to the ladies. Matt leaves Tom with Mother Gwenna. In just in Tom, of course, is protesting, but Matt's like, you're sick, man. Just I'm going to do this on my own. And he sets out to figure out how to get into the stone. And this might be the first time he hears dice tumbling in his head, actually. Yeah, as I, opposed think, to just, I think so, yeah. As opposed to just it being like he knowing his luck is in. When the dice are tumbling in his head, he doesn't know if it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. At some point, the dice are going to land and something good or bad is going to happen. This is something that I've, I've talked about a few times with different folks. Uh, it's, it's such a major thing with Matt's character throughout the books, and this is the first time we run into it, that he hears the dice rattling in his head. And what does that mean? He's, he's never really sure, only that something is going to happen. Yeah. And it may happen soon. It may happen a little while from now, but it's kind of this almost dread that he feels from when once he starts to kind of realize that that's what it means. And yet, how do you do that on a television show? Do you, you know, you have him yeah, pause and say, right. gee, the dice in my head are rattling. And what does that even mean? <laughs> right. My suggestion for that is I hope they come up with a theme that for Matt that kind of indicates when the dice would be rattling and maybe even have the sound of dice rattling as a part of the theme. Oh, that's good. And maybe 
not even totally say explicitly this right now means that Matt feels like there's dice rattling in his head. But for fans of the book, then, okay, we get it. This is part where he is kind of feeling that, I don't know, something's happening kind of feeling that he gets when the the dice are rolling. That's good. Yeah, it, it gets to a core problem converting fiction in the novel form to fiction and TV, TV show, movie, whatever it might be, you know, the, just the exposition we get in a character's head, their thoughts, their motivations that the author can just tell us in some cases, and we just can't get that. There's no, you know, thought bubble over their head <laughs> in, the, in, right. the, in the TV show. Although if there was, I mean, I'd be open to that, but it's just not typically <laughs> how they handle things. That would be pretty different. And this would be a strange property to start doing that. It would, yeah. it would. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's like the difference between early Fantastic Four where every character would literally just yell everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to do this now. This is happening to me now. To later when they're thinking it. Or when you have, you know, just a little little thing that's saying what's happening as opposed to it's just it's jarring to go back and read like fantastic four number one or any comic from that era or earlier uh, and just see how often people are just yelling about what they're doing <laughs> it's a definitely a difference and it, it's something that yes. has to be addressed anytime you're you're making that transition mm-hmm. so perrin is busy being awkward around fayil working in the smithy being kind of clumsy and generally not 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 doing a very good job relating to her. She tells him he should grow a beard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then uh, Moraine is the first one who actually realizes Rand is in tear. And not because she saw him, but presumably because her eyes her eyes and ears did. She t- orders everyone back to Tar Valen. But when Fael goes upstairs, she triggers a trap, which is a tear angry owl, that kicks her into Teleron Riyadh and in the wolf dream. So Perrin Moraine says, you know, she's not dead, but her spirit is not with her body. And this was not a trap meant for her. It was a trap meant for probably Perrin or Moraine. So Perrin kind of knows what he has to do. He asks Loyal to guard the door and says he's going in there after her. So he walks into the room and then he's just in the wolf dream who sees Hopper and Hopper says, You're, that tells him he's there too strongly. And it does, <laughs> this does sort of like, raise the question a little bit like is hopper always just sort of nearby in teleran riyadh like, just imagine like a dream wolf walking by his side and when he's he doesn't know it's there i feel like somebody needs to do a, a mashup of hopper from stranger things like talking to parent <laughs> and in the wolf dream right right that's good <laughs> i like that I uh, would watch that just like telling them hey man you're here too strongly and he's like where oh the upside down Right, right, right. We could pass each other, and then that would be a real twist. The upside down is it's the wolf dream. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> See the Demogorgon, the whole thing. Yeah. And, and I think this is a bit of a turning point for Perrin when he starts to realize that he does really care about Fayil, the prospect of losing her, of her dying, um, of her dying from a trap that was meant for him, really drives home the point to him that, that she's, you know, not just this kind of like, woman that's been following him around but yeah. is, is important to him. I do love the detail before he races into Teleon Riyad that when he turns to mm-hmm. Loyal and says mm-hmm. guard the door that Loyal says none will pass me while I live. And Perrin is reminded that Loyal even though he's gentle is this huge you know massive <laughs> like creature right. the yeah. great big man so uh, yeah if you got to have somebody guard the door yeah guard the door he probably could uh, be Could pretty be good at it. <laughs> so we in chapter fifty four, we are fully into the climactic fi- finale at this point, which lasts lasts two full chapters. So better check in on every perspective character in every chapter from here on out, really, yeah. <laughs> because we have to 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 kind of close out all the various plot lines. We find Matt trying to get into the stone via the rooftops and nearly gets knifed by Ruark and his amazing Aiel friends. And then kind of like says, hey, you know, guys, we're all friends here. Julian Sandar shows up because why not? Why wouldn't he be there at that point? He agrees to help Matt go get the ladies out or because he feels bad about what happened with, even though it wasn't really his fault that Leandrin put him under compulsion. He doesn't, he doesn't understand that. All he knows is he betrayed the three right. ladies. Then Matt blows a hole in the stone using some of Eludra's fireworks. Chekhov's fireworks have, <laughs> have shown yep. back up. Here we are. Yep. And so they enter the stone. Next, we get a little paragraph of Rand laughing to himself, not crazily at all. 
inside the stone. <laughs> Apparently, he just climbed up the side. But yeah. he is Aio after all, so that that's right. right. So the very same thing he did in Cain Lin, I suppose. Egwene thinks that she can still get to the world of dreams, even though they are shielded in uh, in tear in the stone. And she's right, which is interesting. Interesting that one that oh, a few things here. Interesting that they didn't search her and take her twisted ring to angry. I like. Guys, you're really being black odds are really really being sloppy. <laughs> like that was really dumb. Right. Interesting that she can enter the world of dreams while shielded, which I think is probably fair to say if she had had the tear angry out that the black Aja has, they require you to channel spirit. Right. She wouldn't have been able to, but the one that Varen gave her doesn't require channeling at all. So she was able to get into the world of dreams. And the fact that she can channel in the world of dreams while shielded in the real world and can't channel there. That's a it's a kind of interesting point that I, I don't really quite understand, but it makes sense, I suppose. Well, it does go towards the fact that in general, all the Aes Sedai, Black Aja or otherwise, don't understand Teleon Riyad or the the rules true, of True, true. So the fact that they wouldn't know that she could still access it and of course that she she can channel and all these other things it would make sense that they wouldn't know about it because it, it seems like none of the Aes Sedai actually knew anything about right, it really Perrin knows as much as anyone and even what she knows is sketch sketched out at best Perrin and Hopper are fighting guards in the wolf dream in the stone of tear trying to get to Fayil and get a kind of a montage of Perrin going back and forth between wolf and human trying to find her and he thinks he's found her kind of lets her go and then she disappears again and he's like what the heck man and uh hopper's like yeah it's the dream you know the things aren't always what they seem basically you know princess is in another castle (laughs) (laughs) exactly then matt is fighting high lord darlin who is a character later in the series after the fact that matt just knocks him out just just doesn't doesn't kill him knocks him out but he's a very good swords Swordsman, he's like not wearing shoes. He's just like, I will take you up down. And Matt whacks him in the head, knocks him out. Mm-hmm. And we get a comical moment where Matt and Julian are, are kind of arguing. And Julian is insisting about being called a thief catcher, not thief taker. And then right. Matt swings his staff up on his shoulder and accidentally whacks another High Lord in the head. Yeah. <laughs> he's trying to sneak up on them like, oh, crud. <laughs> there was another <laughs> one. So we should be more careful. Lots of Lots of good moments. Yeah, there's a lot of lightheartedness in all of these books. I hope that plays into, and I'm and I'm optimistic, you know, given that Rafe Judkins, showrunner, worked on Chuck and Agents of Shield, and yeah. uh, Chuck obviously is as much a comedy as anything. Agents of Shield has always had a, moments, yeah. a, yeah, a good peppering of of light moments, and I, I just feel like that's so much a part of the books that you have those kinds of things that every once in a while, yeah, a guy just gets knocked in the head on accident, and, right? Uh, severe, luck, severe luck, yeah, yes, severe. Yes. So he and Julian are looking for a shortcut passage that the High Lords use to get to jail cells, and then we get really the big finale chapter. We get a, we get another chapter that's coming coming down, but chapter fifty five is the big big chapter, and it's the closest we get to an actual proper Rand chapter because you have to have Rand for this part. It's pretty important. Rand enters the chamber containing Kalendor. And Bilal introduces himself, just walks up, introduces himself. This is when it made me think that, oh, the, the, the scene from the cover never really happens. Right. <laughs> it's because Perrin is off in the wolf ring, you know, being a wolf, and Matt is busy rescuing the ladies with Julian when all this is going down. Bilal tells him to take hold of his Jedi weapon and strike me down. I mean, wait, never mind. <laughs> says, take Kalendor and defend yourself. And then he makes a black sword of Sidene, and Bran responds by making his usual, you know, red sword of Sidene, and they get to lightsaber, and <laughs> this does seem kind of cool, because, I mean, how often is it that they're, you know, these two, they're both, you know, have the swords made out of power that are fighting, and just imagine the sparks flying, the whole thing. Yeah. Notably, Bilal's glowy blade also has a heron branded on it, and it's clear that he actually is a blade master, and is better than Rand at, at this whole thing, and, and Rand is, is generally just kind of defending himself, trying to keep himself alive, uh, in the background, Aiel show up, start fighting Defenders of the Stone, which is an, it probably would be pretty epic, pretty epic battle, even though the Defenders never had a snowball's chance and Shale goal to beat him. It, it really does make me wonder, what the heck would a sword made out of Sidene feel like? <laughs> you know, like, would yeah. he make it weigh the right, right amount? Or would it just be pure energy and not have any 
heft at all. I guess he could weight it with flows of earth, but it doesn't seem like he probably knows how to do that at this point. Anyway, not super important. Just uh, What are you talking about? All of this stuff is incredibly important. <laughs> Touche, sir. Touche. <laughs> so uh, Rand trips over a dead dude and falls down. And Bilal is still trying to get him, trying really hard to get him to uh, to take Kalendor, but he's really just getting tired of it. I think he's ready to just ready to kill Rand and about to be we're about to be done with this whole thing. But then Moraine blows him away with Balefire, just shows up, busts out the Balefire, and and he even like as it happens is like no, he knows what happens because Bilal is killed with Balefire. He ain't coming back, and that's a, right. that's a key point that the rest of them are spun back out fairly quickly, or a lot of them are, with new faces, new names, sometimes new genders. But Bilal is not, because he's been blown out of the pattern altogether. <laughs> I, I really hope that the entry, that it's a little bit like the, the end of Captain Marvel, when yon is saying to her, see if you can keep your emotions, and then she just blows him away like in <laughs> mid-sentence. I really, I would love it. If uh, Bilal is monologuing about right. how he's going to become nameless and all this and everything, and then the door just bursts open, and, <laughs> you know. Yes. <laughs> By the way, I really hope that Balefire makes a really wicked sound. That yes. it's like some kind of, in addition to being a, a, a white bar hot of white light. bar of you yeah. know, molten yeah. fire or whatever, molten fire, yeah. I want it to just sound ridiculous. I don't know why that's not in the book, but that's my own kind of headcanon of it. I like it. I think it's a great idea. And that also makes me think, so realizing what Balefire does, why don't they kill all of the Forsaken with Balefire? Like, this is just one of those places where they needed to, they needed to coordinate a little better. I, I'm wondering at this point, and, and we're, I mean, we're getting a tiny bit spoilery here, but yeah. we are coming down to the, to the ending. Right. Just, I'm just wondering if they don't know that Balefire is really the only way to permanently Right, that's true. Yeah, I don't know why they would know. That's a fair point. It's not like they've killed a bunch of Forsaken and had them spun back out into the pattern. So <laughs> it's yeah. one of those things like the next time maybe. It, it, maybe, if, maybe if Rand had all of Luz Farron's memories and really kind of had internalized them, he would know. But Maybe. So Moraine tells Rand to take Kalendor, but then... Bazelmon has been like hiding in the rafters disguised as a thundercloud or as a shadow or something. <laughs> it's just kind of a fun image. Uh, and he just kind of backhands him magically. And not really sure, but something that has a major knockback and it knocks Rand into Kalendor. So which, you know, Rand was about to die probably, but knocked him right into Kalendor. So that was probably a bit of a miscalculation there, Ish, old boy. <laughs> Uh, so as soon as he realizes that, he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> and Bilesamon hightails it out of there through Teller on Riyadh. Rand sees what he did. And since he has the power of Kalendor coursing through him, Rand opens a portal, tears a hole in reality, not really knowing what he's doing, and follows Bilesamon and says, I am the hunter now. So Egwene is still in Teller on Riyadh and sees her captor. So she's in, in Teller on Riyadh, outside of the room where she's being held, but of course in the real world. And it's, she sees her captor drifting in and out of sleep. So she's like sometimes there and sometimes not while shielding them, which is an interesting kind of like the, the idea that you could be in and out of Teleroniot at, at the same time. We get more of that later. Amiko is shielded, but that's right. They still can't get out because the door's locked basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's when Matt gets there and lets him out. And Nynaeve thanks him by telling him to watch his language. <laughs> <laughs> and then Nynaeve punches Amiko Nagoyan, uh, which causes her to be stilled uh, by breaking her weave and knocking her out. But heck of a left hook for <laughs> how many people yeah. can say they stilled somebody by punching them? Uh, <laughs> Nynaeve can. Perrin saves Fayil finally, and they get out of the wolf stream. And, and this, is, this is when parent finally calls her Fael and this is when he realizes he has the hots for her really you know it's kind of yeah. uh, kind of kind of clear at this point uh, back to Rand where we learn that count Kalendor is I guess the thing that can counter Balefire makes sense Bazelman kind of stealth Balefires him and he kind of like blocks it with his lightsaber and knocks it away Rand manages to then he kills him with a questionable line you are destroyed you are undone <laughs> and stabs him in the chest. Uh, Rand stabbed <laughs> Bazelman in the chest. I didn't think that was a bit of a line. But even then dying, this dude sticks with his delusions and yells, Fool, the great lord of the dark cannot be defeated. 
So I would say Rand can be kind of forgiven for thinking that he did indeed kill the Dark One. Uh, and let's just go ahead and call off the last battle. That whole unpleasantness won't be necessary. Right. <laughs> um, but so Rand comes out of the, the dream, sees that there is a dead man there who just kind of disintegrates. And just, yeah, just a regular dead guy, though. As, right. Know, so you like would think he body. would realize, okay, a dead guy would, wouldn't be. I think they should have Billy Zane come and just play <laughs> just the right. oh, yeah. dead body. So at this point, it's no longer uh, Moraine says it may have been Ishamayel that built right, Bill right, Hamon. right. So that's that's when Rand should have should under, really should understand and does understand that he has not killed the Dark One, but thinks he has. He really does. The, the joke there for folks who didn't understand the Billy Zane joke: there was a really terrible misfired pilot that was an attempt to hang on to the rights by the company that had bought the rights for television a few years ago. It wasn't even that long ago, I want to say. And it was purely just to keep the rights. And it was aired at like two in the morning. Right. Uh, Harriet McDougal had nothing to do with it. She was really upset about it. And it was it was awful. And uh, Billy Zane, who I have nothing against, and I actually like as an yeah, actor, sure. he played Ishamayel in this pilot, which it, all it was is the prologue scene. Called the Winter Dragon, if you'd like to Google it and be right. horrified. Yeah, you can find it. It's pretty, it's pretty terrible all the way around. Fun fact, the guy who directed it died a month later in a car accident. Oh, gosh. Not the funnest fact, actually. <laughs> but I, I actually think that would be an awesome meta joke if it, yeah. if, if Shamael's bo- dead body was Billy Zane. <laughs> Definitely, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and like, don't have Billy Zane play Bielzema, right? Have, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. Probably, yeah, just for when he dies, so she reveal his true face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be such a just go out of his eyes and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so Rand comes out of Celeron Riyadh announces that he's the dragon reborn and everyone stops fighting. The Aiel and the defenders alike kneel and stop killing each other. Yep. Then we get our kind of post-climactic final chapter. Our denouement. Yeah, our, our everybody meet up and compare notes. Not enough mm-hmm. notes, but a little bit. We find out that the Aiel are the people of the dragon, so that, that kind of explains why Moraine had never heard of them in the prophecies of the dragon. The people of the dragon are, are the Aiel, and uh, Ruark kind of rolls up his sh- sleeve and shows the the dragon tattoo that he has there that all clan chiefs get in Roydion. And we get a little bit of foreshadowing about, about Roydion and, and what the next several books will be about, really. Um, yeah. Lanfear passes a note to Moraine via Barrelane saying that Rand is hers and to lay off. So Barrelane just walks in. Right. Maybe that's the kind of, I think maybe the first time we encounter her. Yes. yes, it absolutely is. I did not at all catch the first time I read this that it mentions that I think it's her, either her crown or something she's wearing has her sigil, which is a hawk. hawk. Love it. Yes. Love it. I'm just pointing that out, you guys. I'm not saying anything else. Right, right. <laughs> just just pointing it out. Berylaine is described as beautiful, as gorgeous, as voluptuous, and she is the first of Mayen. I wish they had done a better job of explaining what that was. First of all, when that first happened, I was like, what the heck is the first of Mayen? That's the ruler of Mayen, which is a city-state near Tyr. Yep. It's also, I think, the smallest country in the Westlands. Yeah, it's pretty much dominated by Tyr, um, generally. Generally and is actually a pretty formidable ruler, which is why it's maintained some level of independence from Tyr. Otherwise, it would have been absorbed by it. Right. The only other real major point is that Egwene establishes Biazelman was not in fact the Dark One, but was probably Ishmael. And we kind of like name off, well, how many of them are left? And it's like, well, there's at least nine. Of course, we know there will be some that will come back. It is interesting how we have two two of them bited in the end of this book. It's like, whoa, we need these back. We only have a few of these. We need all we need them for our boss battles. Yeah, <laughs> two of them dying yeah, exactly. in one chapter. Man, whoa. You also have here the the last time in the series that everybody, like your main character, core characters, are all in the same place at the end of a book. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, everybody kind of goes their separate ways. I mean, for, yeah. uh, you know, when 
Perrin leaves to go back to the two rivers, like he is separated from the rest of them for a long time. And then right. Matt stays longer, but yeah. So we're, so we'll go ahead and say, you know, even though we've already said a couple little things, let's go ahead and just say spoiler warning from here on out. If you're reading through the books the first time, we're going to get into probably a few more of the more spoilerly things. So you might want to stop here as we uh, get up to the end. But was there anything in, in the latter half of this book that just struck you uh, as it, this being your second or third read through or whatever? You know, I, I, I still, I like this book. I like it less than book two. It's paced fairly well. It's, um, it, it's, it's weird to read it the way I read it this last time with uh, an eye for more detail and taking notes, almost reading it like a, <laughs> like for a book report or something. I never had read any of these books like that before. And it definitely le- lends itself to a totally different experience in good and bad ways. You yeah. Get more, you get more detail, but you also kind of, it's, it's easier to see flaws, but I really, I don't know. What about you? Well, in, in the way of things that benefit of having read the whole book series, the first time through, in no way was it indicated that Avienda was anybody important. Sure. Yeah, it just so, could have been just a throwaway random Aiel that like that they right. met on the road and that was it. Exactly. Because you already we've already run into that um, a few times yeah. where right. we run like into Like in the setting or the Aiel men that uh, they met on the road that, that they like expected Varian to kill him. <laughs> right, exactly. I guess the difference would be that there was the kind of toe, you know, that she felt like she owed the three of them a debt for, for saving her friend. Uh, right. But you'd feel like that was kind of paid off by when they freed, when they saved yeah. the three of them from the dark friends. You see, you could almost see how that could be just, okay, it's, it's done. It's, it's all that's been done. Yeah, you don't get much of an indication. And because it it names several of the different Faradarius Mai there when they're all standing there, I she just kind of bled in with them. And so sure. when the next book they try to kind of start to separate her out a little bit. Yeah. The only thing we get there is the fact that like Bane or Chiad mentions the wise ones and how you know, like no one, no Faris Daris Mai will give up the spear, you know, like unless they, you know, give up the spear for a man or if the wise ones force them to, you know, and they say right. something like no matter how much you might want, not want to or whatever. And they, yeah, they look over at a little her. Bit of foreshadowing about her. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of laugh and look over at her and, she yeah, she kind of gives him a frustrated glance or something mm-hmm. like because she knows that she's gonna have to gonna have to give right. up the spear to become right. a wise one because she is. Uh, and one thing, this is interesting. You, you know, we hear all, often about how uh, the Aes Sedai can detect people's uh, yes. general strength and the power. You'd think that that would have come up where Nynaeve, Egwene, Elaine would be like, "Wait a minute, you can channel right, you? yeah, right. and well, you're strong too." They do kind of uh, a little bit of a retcon thing, I think, in in the next book when Egwene finds out that Avienda can channel. She was like, yeah, I kind of knew that. Right. I felt a kinship to you. Like, I felt like you were my sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and I, yeah, I, I feel like there should have been something yeah. that in, in here where they they indicated that they knew she could channel, especially since Avienda is one of the stronger right. female she channelers. Like on, I think she's on the same level as Egwene and Elaine, is that yeah. is the general feel. Like, right. Not as strong as Nynaeve, but stronger than most Aes Sedai, generally. Right, exactly. And, I mean, she demonstrates it pretty... Um, not long after you know, we find out that she can channel, you start to see different things that she can do in, in the following books that even things that Egwene and Elaine don't know how to do because they learn different skills, um, wise ones from Aes Sedai. Right. Yeah, they have um, a totally different approach in how to train train people in the power. The the It seems like the, the wise ones are much more kind of practical, like let's just learn how to use this to fight and maybe to heal and like not, yeah. it's, not it's not as academic, like it's more of a community college experience. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, the wise ones are the trade school of, <laughs> right. of the one power. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just, you know, it's like, guys, there's no reason for us to get into, like, researching why it is that all this does what it does. Look, here's how to throw a fireball. You're going to need to know how to do that the next time we have a blood feud or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And they also have no compunction about using the power to fight, you know. Like it's, yeah. it's, they're, they don't have an oath. They're not taking oaths that prevent them from doing that. 
Although yeah. they wouldn't typically, I don't think they would yeah. typically like use it on other IEL, but it is, they're, they're willing to use the power for violence if they need to, pretty much. Right. Absolutely. There's a lot of interesting bits going, going back with the benefit of knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Throughout this whole book, coming to tier where, as they say, you know, they, they've forbidden channeling and they're all against it and everything. And yet their whole prophecy is about, well, when the dragon shows up, he's going to be in charge. And he is. And they are not, they don't love that, but they're like, okay, I guess we'll accept it. And I do yeah. love the kind of the hints about Aiel we get throughout, you know, the little tidbits of their culture and, and their history. Uh, and then, of course, we get into that far more fully in the next two books. Uh, right. The next book. And it, if you don't like the IEL, like, sorry, you're going to get a lot more of them. But if you do, it's really interesting um, to see yeah. their backstory and to learn learn more about them and learn about their connection to the Way of the Leaf and the Tuatha An and the Aes Sedai and the Jin IEL. All that stuff is everything about Roydeon is, is really good yeah. stuff. It's really interesting. It's very so interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Look forward to talking about that as well. Yep. So we are going to start doing a few episodes in between to kind of cover more news as it comes out. As always, I just want to remind you that you can contact us. Visit our website at tsmpodcast.com. You can email either of us, either Will or Sam. That's Will with two L's, Sam with one M um, <laughs> at tsmpodcast. As opposed to Samael with two M's. Yes, exactly. If you want to visit our website, you can go on there. It allows you to subscribe to any different service that you use to listen to podcasts. It's a great way to share the podcast with other folks. You can take our audience survey. The contact form at the bottom is another great way to get in contact with us. All of those great things. So please do that. As I always say, we would love to hear from you. Yes, indeed. Fair enough. All those things that Sam likes to say. <laughs> at the end of stuff that's i guess that'll be my cliche we'll get a t-shirt that says fair enough on one side and i'll say we love to hear from you on the other <laughs> if you do contact us then we will try to mention you on the podcast if you have something relevant to say to the series if you i mean if you just say something funny maybe we'll share it if it's funny enough and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks and until then taishar manetherin